This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Welcome to the PwC KWHS podcast series for high school educators on business and financial responsibility. I'm Diana Drake, Managing Editor of Knowledge at Wharton High School, and today we are talking about the economic value of higher education and how to help students prepare for managing college costs and debt. During our discussion, we will traverse the rugged financial landscape that surrounds higher education. Students are faced with ever-rising tuition costs, staggering student loan debt, a difficult job market, and the inevitable question, is college worth the investment? I'm here today with two experts who will help us sort through these important issues and offer high school educators some practical insights and advice to help their students make more informed decisions about their financial lives after high school and on college campuses. This is part two of our four-part discussion on the value of higher education with Wharton Management Professor Peter Capelli and PwC partner Michael Denizuk. In the context of rising college costs, we look at issues and strategies related to paying for college, as well as ways students can avoid too much debt. Let's focus now on paying for college. Um, Yes, the cost of college is on the rise. Students have a dizzying array of options to help them pay, from applying for financial aid to pursuing grants and scholarships and, and more. In general, how should students tackle this process and prospect of paying for college? Mike, would you like to answer that one? Yeah. uh, So I have three pieces of advice. Plan, plan, and plan. So when you stop and think about it, college is one of the biggest decisions students will make in their early lives. So you've got financial aid, school loans, borrowing from family. I mean, they're all viable and responsible options. But if the details aren't thoroughly understood, then the step to advanced education can be economically detrimental. So the key is advanced preparation and planning, taking a long-term, thoughtful approach to the education you'll need to achieve your professional goals can help eliminate surprises and guide students, parents, and guardians to the right course of action. And as I said earlier, I don't think you have to pick the most expensive option to get the best education. And I guess, as Peter said, you know, it may be that the sticker price might not be the best way to look at a college either. You know, you, you, you've got to get in and do some research, find out what kind of financial aid is available at certain private universities, for-profit and non-for-profit, and, uh, and compare that up against, uh, you know, the career that you're, you're looking for and uh, in, in the state that you're in. So um, you, you, based on, you know, your view of the student's view of what type of career they want to pursue, Try to determine what the best colleges or other higher education options are to help them achieve this. You know, research the schools and where employers in their profession hire from. There's a wealth of information out there if you take the time to do the research. I will say that, and I'm going to tout this, I tout this with college students that, uh, so go, let's go back to high school now, grades matter, and they play a factor in financial aid options. So when, while colleges use admission tests like SAT or ACT to compare students, they're also very interested in the student's grade and the grade point average and how much they've challenged themselves in school. So the important thing to remember here is that this is something the student has control over because if they work hard, challenge themselves in high school with coursework beyond the basics, for example, honors or AP coursework, and make good grades early on, let's say starting in the ninth grade, and sustain those good grades through the senior year, 
it can make a difference. Uh, you know, strong grades and GPA can translate into more scholarship or financial aid opportunities, both through the school and from private scholarship programs. Now, I mentioned ACT and SAT. I mean, they are important, and those are tests which many colleges still require as part of the student's application process. The higher the score, the more competitive the student is in the college admissions process. And this can translate into merit scholarship opportunities through the school in which they're applying. So ideally, students should begin preparing for those kinds of tests, perhaps in their junior year, maybe taking it at least once as a junior with opportunities then to retake and improve their score in their senior year. Um, and, and there's a number of tools out there that students and families can use to calculate co college costs. In fact, many schools now include college calculators on their websites within their financial aid webpage. And, Diana, I'm, if, if you'll let me, I'm going to make a shameless plug at this point. Uh, one of the tools that students and parents should consider using is the JA Build Your Future app. And this was an app created jointly by PwC and, and Junior Achievement. It's an app you can find in both uh, Apple and the Android stores. Uh, and it's a pretty simple app. It helps teens explore potential future income from a desired career and, and evaluate the cost of post-secondary education to help them make informed decisions. And what this app does is it allows the teens to explore more than 100 careers and see what levels of education are required for those careers, from high school in some cases to a doctorate in other cases. They learn about potential income from those careers, calculate the cost of education, uh, include factoring the cost of attending uh, an in-state, out-of-state, public or private university, and then they can adjust the level of money they and their parents or guardians may contribute, combined with student loans they may need to secure. And at the end of all that exercise, once they plug all that information in, and it's not very hard to do, it's easier than doing some of the financial aid uh, um, forms that people do, but at the end there, the teens are given a return on investment score between one and five, uh, and a score of one suggests it'll be difficult to pay off your debt uh, based upon future income, and an ROI of five would indicate that using current factors, there should be less financial hardship paying off debt with that estimated future income. So thanks for allowing me to, to plug that. Uh, well, I want to thank Mike for uh, plugging my book uh, because the subtitle of my book is The Guide to the Biggest Investment You'll Ever Make. And I think, Mike, you used exactly that language, so that's nice. Thank you. Uh, let me just add a, a couple of uh, th things in terms of thinking about uh, this investment. Um, back to the issue of, of grades, for example. There's a distinction between financial aid as we usually think about it, which is need-based. And financial aid that's need-based, which is all the government aid, is not based on your grades. It's based on your just on your family income. Uh, but your grades and other attributes affect what's known as merit aid. And merit aid is increasingly important. When I was in college, merit aid basically didn't exist. But merit aid is basically colleges trying to buy a better student body. And what that means is... Uh, they are trying to get students with higher scores than they had before because it makes the college look better. They're trying to get kids who are better at extracurricular activities because it helps the college in other ways but basically makes the college look better. And so what they're offering you is the opportunity to kind of trade down, that is to get into a school which and go to a school which might be not as elite or not as selective as the one you would have gone to. But if you take that, it's a lot cheaper. And some of these merit-based uh, scholarships are quite substantial. You know, it's 
it's not unusual to get 30 50% reduction in your tuition in order to come to go to one of those schools. Uh, and I think this is a tough choice, but it's one you ought to think about carefully if you're a family, because if it allows you to av- avoid taking out student loans, uh, you're trading down a little bit in school, and you're getting a lower cost college as a result, and it and it means that you don't have to take out student loans. It's something you really ought to take a, take very seriously. We haven't talked much about student loans. Let me say a couple of things about them. The typical student loan interest rate this uh, right now is about 7%. The federal government student loans, the very best ones, I think are pegged at the moment at about 4.8%. But 7% is a pretty high interest rate. Uh, most of these loans, uh, the interest starts compounding from the day you take them out and it continues to compound even if you don't have a job and you cannot get out from under these. Some federal loans, you'll be glad to hear, you can get out from under if you die, uh, but that's about it. If you declare bankruptcy, you're still stuck with them. Um, and these are big, big deals. I think most parents would really have a very hard time if their kids took out a car loan at 50%, but a student loan is way, uh, or at $50,000 of a car loan. But if a student took out a college loan at $50,000, we wouldn't blink about that. It happens all the time, but it's actually much more serious. So I think that merit uh, decision, merit uh, scholarship decision, is a tricky one to think through because we also know that if kids go to colleges they don't want to go to, they don't do as well there. And any parent who's tried to talk their kid into going to someplace kid doesn't want to go to will find that's a really unpleasant conversation to have. On the other hand, you know, the money issue is really a a big, big deal, and it's something we better think about carefully. Uh, I do want to say something about the idea uh, Mike disagreed with a little bit here on the issue of planning, because um, my experience watching college kids, watching my own, and looking at the data on things like college majors suggests that I would really discourage somebody at age 17 from trying to pick their career. Uh, And the reason is you don't know much of anything at 17, and it's quite likely that once you get into college and you see other opportunities, you'll change your views on your major, you'll change your views on what your career interests might be. And those of us who are older know that many people later in life still aren't sure what they want their career to be. Uh, And the reason that matters is in choosing your college, you want to be able to go to some place where you can change your mind. Uh, If you go to a college, for example, you think you want to be uh, an accountant, let's say, and you go to an accounting school and you decide once you get there that you don't like accounting, if you have to change colleges to change your major, that's a really difficult thing to do. And changing majors is something that most kids do. Many kids do it more than once. You really want to go to a college where it's easy to change your major. One of the real important things, I'd say the most important thing for parents who are thinking about the investment in college is, will my kid graduate? And will my kid graduate on time? You know, only 40% of kids graduate in four years in the U.S. Only 60% graduate in six years. And one of the big hurdles in graduating on time is getting your majors completed. And particularly when kids change majors, they often find that they have to take a different sequence of courses and they have to take them in a particular order to get this major. 
Often they can't get the courses they want in the order they need to take them, and they end up spending a fifth year at college because they have to do it in order to complete the new major. So I would think a lot about going to a school where if I change my mind, it doesn't put me into a hole. I would think about that as being one of the primary things that guarantees you're not going to get burned too much on the cost side. On again to another question from an educator. Lou DeCesar from Irondequoit High School in New York wants to know what advice you might offer to the average college applicant. This would be someone who has average academics, is not a Division I scholarship athlete, and his parents make too much money to receive grants and too little money to save or pay a sizable amount of cost. What other options are out there, things like dual enrollment, community college, or even working part-time during college? Peter, do you have any advice for, for that student? Well, I guess the first thing to, to note, and this is, I think, good news for parents and for kids, is that once you get past these super elite schools, getting into college is actually pretty easy. Uh, and and these days, as the echo of the baby boom begins to decline a little bit, the entering cohort of 18-year-olds is actually getting smaller. And I think the figure is about half the schools in the U.S. effectively have open admissions, and that is it'll take pretty much anybody. So there's a lot of places you can go, and as Mike was saying earlier, it's also possible to transfer from one school to another. It's possible to start at community colleges or at a state university and transfer to the flagship university and lots of other you know, opportunities. Going to school part-time is also an option, and a huge number of people do that in the U.S., uh, I think the the trick with it, though, is that if you are not earning enough, very much money, it's going to be pretty difficult to pay your way through college, going to school part-time. Uh, you know, if the average college student takes more than six years to graduate, or six years or more to graduate, if you're going to school part-time, it's it's quite likely to take you a very long period of time to get your degree, and you have to pay it off at pretty low-wage jobs. So I did a quick calculation a little while ago of uh, what it would, how long it would take you if you were working at a minimum-wage job to pay off college. In the 1950s, even at the Wharton School, I think you could pay off a college education in about a year working at a minimum-wage job if you were living at home. But because minimum wage has eroded in purchasing power over time and has and college tuition has gone up so much, that now it would take you many years to pay off a college education working at a minimum wage job. So I would think long and hard about trying to go to school part-time. It's a very different experience than being a full-time student someplace. I think it might be better to think about going to community college full-time where you can give it some focus than it is to try to be a part-time student at a four-year school where you're effectively not going to have a cohort. You're not going to have an on-campus experience. It's really something quite different. Aaron Greberman, a business teacher from William Bodine High School in Philadelphia, wants to better understand the specifics of financial aid. He asks, how do colleges determine who receives aid? How do they determine the amount of aid offered? And how can parents maximize financial aid awards? Peter? So there's a big chunk of financial aid, and it's most of it in the country that comes from the federal government. And that aid is allocated based on some very clear formulas that have to do with parents' income and wealth 
and parents' obligations like the other number of children they have to support. There's not much of anything you can do with that, and the schools themselves can't play around much or at all with that. The schools themselves have other kinds of financial aid, and those financial aid issues they can play around with more. Uh, For example, there is some evidence that if you uh, tell a school that you don't need much financial aid, there's some evidence that they might be more inclined to admit you. Uh, They don't often admit that, but there's some survey evidence from college admissions officers suggesting that's the case. Uh, And then there's the merit aid we talked about earlier, right? So I think if you're a, a parent, there's not an awful lot you can do to game the system. Um, For one thing, you better think very hard about making stuff up because it's a felony if you get caught faking a college uh, um, financial aid application for federal government purposes. Uh, I think the issue of admissions and financial aid does matter a little bit. Uh, On the merit aid side, you probably can bargain with schools. You can say, uh, you know, I'd really want to – my child would really want to come here but we got a better offer from someplace else. Um, would you be willing to match the offer? And there are some schools, for example, on need-based aid. Cornell University says that they will match any other college's need-based financial aid. So if you get a better deal from financial aid, not merit, but just the financial aid from someplace else, you can go to Cornell and say, we got a better offer from Brandeis or Penn, and they'll say, we'll match it. So I think that's something you probably can bargain with if you get a better offer from another school. And on merit aid, you that's something you can shop around with as well. But otherwise, the straight-up need-based financial aid, which is mainly federal-based, you can't do much of anything about that. <laughs> Don't try to manipulate your income in order to try to get more out of that. Uh, that's simply based on your tax return kind of information, and that's stuff you can't fudge. You know, it's uh, just from personal experience, uh, I did not qualify for financial aid, but uh, my experience is if you don't ask for the merit aid, you're not going to get it. So my simple rule is uh, if you don't ask for it, you're not going to get it, and uh, you may as well ask for it. So, Mike, are trade schools a good alternative, do you think, for students who aren't interested in college, and how does the cost compare? Well, you know, it, it depends upon... The, the type of career or profession you're looking at. A trade school is an educational institution that exists to teach skills in a very specific type of job. Um, and, and the trade schools typically take a lot less time to complete. And they have smaller class sizes, and the majority of the training is, is hands-on, which may be an ideal environment for many types of learners out there. Not everyone uh, is going to go on to university. So there's lots of options that lead to potentially well-paying careers, like electricians and plumbing and welding and metalwork and masonry and locksmiths and, and, and so forth. And some of the professions can pay pretty decent wages. Uh, according to Payscale, electricians earn an average of over $20 an hour, somewhere between thirty dollars and $80,000 a year, and plumbers are around the same amount. So uh, technical and trade school jobs, if you, you look at some of the, uh, the uh, reports out there, uh, the annual median salary of about $35,000, uh, but but that figure varies very heavily based upon the particular industry and the experience level of the worker. And by comparison, um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics predicted earnings for a bachelor's degree holder to be roughly $47,000, so about $12,000 higher. So, again, it depends upon, you know, whether 
what type of career you're looking at, what type of job you're looking for, how well you've done in school, and so forth. Uh, going to a trade school might make sense, and, and in other cases it might not. You know, when you look in the longer term, uh, looking at lifetime earnings, bachelor's degree still pays off and, and opens many doors for the future. I mean, it'll, it will result in higher starting earnings and better opportunities for increases earnings and, 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 and gives the option to continue studies and earn substantially more with a master's degree or doctorate. Those would not be available if you, for a person who is going to trade school. Uh, let me just uh, add a couple of things to that about why this is uh, such a difficult decision to to make. And you really have to, as Mike was saying earlier, think about this carefully because it's quite hard to know how well different colleges prepare you for the job market. Colleges are not required to report placement rates, and they typically don't. Uh, and when they report placement rates... The information they're providing is often not particularly trustworthy. Now, some of that is just hard to do, period. It's not their fault because in order to do it, you have to follow your alumni, the people who graduated, and find out what they're doing. Sometimes it's hard to find them, uh, and when you find them, they don't often answer your request for information. Uh, but what's reported is often pretty dicey. There was an interesting paper done by a couple of law professors uh, and they concluded that what law schools were reporting about placement rates was so misleading that it actually constituted fraud. You know, that they were reporting that uh, any law school graduate at any kind of job was employed, <laughs> you know, even if it wasn't in law. And they were counting people who were working part-time as, as regular placements and all kinds of things which are highly misleading. So it's pretty tricky to figure out uh, what schools will prepare you well for the job market. I think about the best thing you can do for four-year colleges is go to their placement office and look to see who's recruiting there, what kind of jobs, and what are the pay rates of the uh, jobs that are being offered to graduates that year. Uh, the folks at Payscale that Mike mentioned before, they've got some interesting information about annual salaries of graduates from different colleges. They did... Uh, an interesting study that they did in combination with Business Week to look at the rate of return on your investment, which is different than saying, will you make more money as a college grad than a high school grad? It's not surprising that college grads make more money than high school grads. For one thing, they're older. Uh, for another, people who go to college are already different than people who only go to high school. They got more parent support. They typically have more money going into it. And what the Payscale guys found is that in a quarter of the colleges that they looked at, the rate of return on the college investment was actually negative. That means the best thing you could do at those colleges to improve your return on investment was quit. Uh, and that's pretty stunning, right? So the idea that college will always pay off is not true. It depends where you go. Uh, and the idea that you will get a better job out of college, at least in terms of money, is probably not true either. It's very difficult to predict. It depends on supply and demand. And there are times when high school graduates in the U.S. back in the 1960s and through the early 70s, high school graduates in the U.S. did not make less money than college graduates. Though that was a period when we had strong unions and high manufacturing wages. Pretty stunning to think about. We always just assume college graduates make more, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't always true. And right now, that college gap between college grads and high school graduates is as high as it's ever been. So I think if you're betting, you probably wouldn't bet that it will stay at this level forever. 
So, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty here, which is why it's important to try to get as much information as you can, but some of that information is hard to get. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.